Hello and welcome to Top Landing Gear, a special unscheduled Spitfire episode, reduced in size but just as fun. And you could almost say a slimmed down episode, especially as both curling brothers cannot be with us today. Jez out there fencing for Queen and Country, agriculturally of course, and Rob living the high life commentating on tennis, at first the French Open and then at Queen's, probably quaffing champagne as we speak, spending his podcast millions. <laughs> so not unlike... Those beautiful 747s trundling around the runway at Dunsfold Aerodrome. Our two aviation heavyweights, in every sense of the word, are currently grounded, unfit for purpose, no longer flying. But do not fear, because like a couple of sleek and agile Belarusian MiG-29s, myself and pilot James Carton have come to divert this podcast from its original destination. That was supposed to be a special episode on Dan Busters and a full flaps outside broadcast from the RAF Scampton Heritage Centre. But... That will have to wait until our heroes return. Instead, James and I are going to have a catch-up on all things aviation, answer a corking Ask James question, take part in the legendary top landing quiz. It's just me. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Just because I know you like the quiz so much. And as this week marks the 85th anniversary of the first ever public flight of the Spitfire, we're going to rerun our wonderful interview with Jim Schofield, chief pilot of the Bolt B Academy, which is now open for Spitfire flights. And if you are very, very lucky, you may even spot a noughties indie pop star trundling down the runway at Goodwood after the Spitfire in his beloved Sport Air Icarus C-42. Yes, indeed, me. One, a glorious throwback to a bygone era, and the other, one of the most beautiful aircraft ever made. <laughs> I enjoyed writing this. Yeah, I can tell. It took me all afternoon. <laughs> I haven't got no work to do on that, Rob. <laughs> anyway, so let's crack on. Introduce James, who's just flown in from Lagos this afternoon. How was Lagos? How was your flight? And what's the world of commercial aviation looking like right now? Well, Lagos was a very interesting flight because we were supposed to leave on Saturday. Uh, unfortunately... Just before we, uh, or the, the day before, the aircraft before us had to divert into Abuja because they were digging the runway lights up at Lagos and there were no lights on the runway. And we, our planned uh, landing time was after dark, so it wasn't safe for us to go. Did they, so, not, did they not tell you? They, they put a little thing on the NOTAM saying there might be some runway end lights missing, but not the whole lot of the runway lights. So <laughs> uh, we had a bit of a delay. We, went, we left then on uh, Sunday. So how, how did you find that out? Did, so did we, somebody we actually, turn up? And we actually got a text message from the previous captain who said, we didn't land at Lagos. Whilst uh, you're flying? No, before. Well, before, before right, well, okay. It was actually just before the brief. Yeah. Um, so we then said, oh, okay. Um, and had a look at it, a lot of chatting to ops and everything. And in the end, they decided that uh, it wasn't safe for us to go. So we delayed until we could land there in daylight hours the next day. Right, okay. Um, so we got an extra night in London in our little bubble in the hotel. Nice. And uh, then flew out the following morning. Passengers? or Yeah, this, uh, this is my first passenger flight in a while. So okay. passengers to and from uh, Nigeria. So it's good. And have you been flying much lately? No, I've done... Uh, it's working about two flights a month at the moment. Okay. Um, but so keeping current, keeping... Uh, it's coming back slowly, uh, yep. it appears. Does it feel like... Obviously, I'm <laughs> under the yeah. Gatwick flight path here. It does feel busier. It is busier, um, but it's... Um, Actually, it was quite interesting to see that I've seen more passengers at the airport than I've seen for a while now. Okay. So it looks like, you know, it feels like something's happening, but obviously with the restrictions that have been announced recently, there's nothing immediately on the horizon that says it's going to change. But, and I I think we are all waiting for, it appears that Europe are opening up America from the 1st of July. 
Okay. Yeah. And I think the hope is that the UK will follow follow suit, and we we can have some sort of um, corridor between the UK and the US. But again, we're still at the at the beck and call of our political masters. So if Europe does open up first, mm. uh, would that mean more flights for you? No, or... I, I don't think so because we are very much UK based, yeah. and, and we don't have a a foreign sort of base in in the way that, for example, companies like Ryanair and EasyJet can shift their bases. Okay. Uh, and they can move their aircraft around because they have bases around. We're, we're very UK centred. Okay, perfect. It does. It does feel. I'm still. I know it's a setback by a month, mm. but it does feel cautiously optimistic. Yeah, I mean, what what appears to be happening, and again, I think it's all still. I mean, it's, you've got the same issue with your with music. Yeah. The whole world is waiting for it to open up. Yeah. It's been delayed a month. From what Boris has been saying. He's fairly sure that that will be a hard date as opposed to this original date, which was always we go on the data, not the date. And this is more of a date yeah. than the date. But who knows? I mean, you know, no no one is really willing to financially gamble on it definitely opening up then. I know. Well, I, I, I was just telling you before, I've just lost uh, Kendall Calling Scouting. We're headlining the one of the stages on the last night. And that's oh. just closed because there's no... You know, there's no assurances. No. There's no, you can't get any insurance. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's so hard. So hard. It's rubbish at the moment. But uh, can we talk about some new stuff? Yeah. Uh, the Did you see the British Airways 787, the one which the nose gear clapped? I did. did it, like That was one of the, the saddest images. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen it. It made me want to cry. Yeah. I've seen without a nose gear. And, look, and it's a nice new shiny aircraft. I know. And it's, it's all... Uh, yeah, I, I understand there was an engineering issue. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure of the exact details, but they were, I believe, trying to um, swing the gear doors with the gear locked down, and something happened that the gear went up. Okay, so swing there, the gear doors so there to were no, close the gear. Yeah, so right. there were no no passengers on board. It was yeah. it was going through engineering checks. I think I understand the aircraft had had some sort of um, problem with the the nose gear door. So when, once the the front wheel goes up. The doors closed to, to make it all smooth. One of those doors had an issue. Right. They would fix that. We're yeah. testing it. And for some reason, to be decided at an inquiry, I'm sure, right. uh, the the wheels went up as well when they uh, pulled the handle for the doors. So would that have would that have come down? Because if if you haven't seen it, just mm-hmm. if you just Google British Airways seven eight seven nose gear collapse, you'll see. It almost looks like a child's model. You know yeah. how with a child's model, <laughs> yeah. the first thing that always goes is, funny, yeah. is the front gear. And it's just, I've never seen an aircraft look like yeah. that in at an airport. Yeah. And it felt, yeah, if, it was very, would it have, would it have been a big collapse or would uh, it, it, would have, it, would have, it would have It would have been more gradual. It wouldn't yeah. have just fallen smack on it. It would have gone down. So the wheel goes down under a bit, bit of power. Yeah. And as that had gone down, it would have just, the nose would have gone down. And, and, and would there have been, the person responsible there looking at this like saying several words which i think can... no words would be repeatable <laughs> that, um, yeah so it, it was um i think from what i understand there was a slight engineering mix-up yeah um and but hopefully you know no one was hurt no one was injured bit of pride bit of money um yeah. i think the aircraft will fly again and how hopefully. much do you think can you can you give us a rough estimate Is I, it millions i'm, not, I'm or... not into that but from what it Looks, and I understand, I don't think any massive structural damage to the aircraft structure, the, the sort of the, the pressurization part right. of the aircraft doesn't appear damaged. And if that's the case, it'll probably be in the hundreds of thousands rather than the millions. Yeah. Well, we can sleep easily then. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit of overtime to do, isn't it? Yeah. 
Right, okay, next thing I want to talk about uh, is, and I alluded to this in my rather fine intro. <laughs> Rob, you can have your job back because that did take such a long time to do. Uh, what, I'd love to get your thoughts on Ryanair Flight 4978, the one that got intercepted and was forced to land. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this? Would you have, what's the protocol yeah. and would you have done anything differently? Well, the protocol is, is pretty much what I understand the pilots did. They were um, warned by a traffic that they had an issue. They were then uh, met by a couple of uh, MIGs. Yeah. And the protocol is generally, you, you have to do what, what, what you're told. The next stage is that they start firing um, across the front of the nose. Wow. And if you don't follow them, they can then shoot you down, technically. Right. If now, you're over their airspace. If you're over their yeah. airspace. The reasons behind why they did it, it appears now were highly irregular yeah. uh, and dodgy. And... Um, you know, I think there there is a lack of trust now in in Belarus, and we are all airlines are avoiding flying right. over their airspace. Um, but to be in that situation when you see a fighter on your wing and yeah. he's giving you instructions, <laughs> you're a very brave man <laughs> to say, "No, sod you, I'm carrying yeah. on." Now, the only the sort of the where there might be some leeway, depending on how close to the border you are. Yeah. If you can sort of take your time in understanding what they say right, okay. and getting over the border, that's the sort of yeah. leeway you have. And that's where they may have, but I, I, I wouldn't like to be in that position myself. There's not, there's not really much. <laughs> oh, what are you saying there yeah. with that? So, so, <laughs> so, so, missile. Yes. <laughs> so is that missile uh, coming at me? Or <laughs> So yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. And uh, I, 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 I don't think anyone will criticise what the pilots themselves did. Yeah, especially after I read here, okay, CEO of Ryanair, Michael O'Leary, mm. The pilots were told by Belarusian ATC, there was a bomb on board, mm. that would be detonated if the aircraft entered Lithuanian airspace, hence mm. the need to divert to Minsk. He said the pilots tried to contact Ryanair, but were lied to by the ATC that, they were, that Ryanair were not answering the phone. Mm. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to phone Ryanair. <laughs> I think they have to send them an email and hope they get back. <laughs> I think that maybe Ryanair just didn't answer, and this could have all been sorted out. But uh, no, like it's a, it's a probably big ramifications for for flying over Europe. Yeah, well, I, ever I, or is it a no? I mean, I think one off. I think it's, it, it it was it was such an abuse of the the rules. Yeah, um, and obviously lying. It was a blatant lie. Yeah, uh, to get that aircraft to land. Um, that I think it, it creates massive trust issues. Yeah, and if you if you can't, you know, if they're going to break international it's almost piracy to yeah, be fair what yeah, they did yeah if not actually is technically piracy yeah so so what they did you know to, to to rebuild that trust will take an awful lot of time now i understand the belarusian government have issues other than this yeah, yeah. with how they deal with people <laughs> yeah <laughs> so this is more of an extension than that but i would be very beyond very, the remit of yeah. our podcast <laughs> so yeah um Certainly interesting one, and and it's been grounds for lots of discussion on all the sort of pilot networks and things. But I, I think to have done anything else, yeah, you, you're really on, on. If something goes wrong, yeah, that's so why don't you just do what you're told? So now to our Ask James section, where you can email in and ask James, our resident <coughs> aviation expert, anything you like. Uh, and I wanted to do this. So basically, we've put together this this episode because we knew that Jez and Rob were going to be away and we didn't want to miss a week. And so we, we thought, and we'd had a couple of a really good questions. So please keep them coming in. Mm. Uh, I'm only going to choose one. Uh, cause we've, we've had three or four mm. J 
just this week, but this one I really liked. Firstly, it was from Stuart Hingle. It starts with a nice compliment. I know. I, yeah, I like that. Dear Top Landing Gear, firstly, Series 3 has been great so far. I'm really enjoying it. Keep up the good work. That's only after two episodes. Yeah. It's, it's, only, it's all downhill Should we just from stop here. there? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have a question for James, if I may. I'm polite. That's polite. What, look at that. I've read several books recently which centre on helicopter aviation. Some of the notable being Scram and Immediate Action. Yeah. Scram, very famous, isn't it? Yeah. We've talked about that a lot. Yeah. Uh, I finished Chicken Hawk in the last couple of days, and I've become ever more fascinated by the skill involved in flying rotary wing aircraft. For example, in Chicken Hawk, the author refers to transitional lift as a method of increasing the payload and getting airborne when the aircraft is too heavy to hover. He also touches on underslung loads and one particular accident during the Vietnam War, which brought home the dangers involved in this type of flying. I was wondering if James could shed some light on these things, give us a flavour of the complexities of moving large, heavy loads by helicopter. And on a personal note, which I, which I love this, I served with 16 Air Assault Brigade as a combat medic for several years from 2008, which afforded me the opportunity to fly in multiple RAF Navy and Army helicopter types including the Puma in Kenya. I also trained as an... It would be interesting to see who we thought was the best pilots, RAF Army. (laughs) Army. Uh, I also trained as an Army rigger marshal as part of a wider role within the Airborne Brigade, which gave me some first-hand experience of working with helicopters in an operational capacity and with preparing underslung loads and temporary HLSs. Don't know what that means. Underslung loads. Helicopter landing sites. Perfect. I feel proud to have had the opportunity to do so, and you should do. Uh, and I have a great deal of respect for pilots like James. Mm. <laughs> You've never met me, obviously. <laughs> I also started learning to fly microlights. Woo! After I heard Roy's experience on the podcast. This is why I wanted to do it. Yeah. yeah. I'm flying a Eurostar SL. I love the Eurostar. I'm flying an Icarus, but I do like the Eurostar because it's got like this big bubble. Yeah. We flew the we Eurostar. We flew the Eurostar up in um, Lincolnshire. In Lincolnshire, which is coming soon, rather than the Icarus, but it's been amazing so far. I'm so glad you enjoyed that, Stuart. Looking forward to next week's podcast. Thank you for putting them together. It is a pleasure to do all of that. So, uh, Let's go back to, right, okay, transitional lift as a method of increasing the payload and getting airborne when the aircraft is too heavy to hover. What? How can you fly a helicopter if it's too heavy to hover? Surely that's not a thing. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go back to my days as a qualified helicopter instructor now and start talking through the the um, uh, the physics of it all. I apologise if we lose our listener during this. Okay. I'll, I'll <laughs> keep, I'll bit, keep a, you. A bit, a bit technical, but... So, I always uh, think that I my job here... Yeah. Did you know Poirot had Hastings, <laughs> who was the bumbling idiot who kept asking the questions, and that brings in the stupid viewers right, so to understand it. So if I, just if I lose you at all, just bring me back okay, on track. Right. So the idea is when a helicopter is in the hover, or any wing, whenever any wing is providing lift, you get low pressure on top of the wing and high pressure underneath the wing. That's, that's how it creates lift. I, that was in my... So when I, I was supposed to be flying last week, yeah. and we didn't fly. And as I said, we had ground school instead. We oh, yeah. did stalling. Yeah. But I actually, this is really embarrassing because I'm 42 years old. I never realised that was how lift was created. <laughs> I thought it was just like the air flew and so it just kind of pushed it up. Yeah. And it's I, I've only just found out there that... that, that that's the okay. what learning right. about. Okay. So by having low pressure above and high pressure below, the wing is sort of sucked upwards, if you like. Yeah. The problem at the tip of any wing is that the air wants to go from the high pressure to the low pressure. So around the tip of a wing, you get these little sort of vortices, circular motion of air going from underneath onto the top, and it, and it forms into a, <clears throat> a, 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 a circle. Um, so that's any wing. A helicopter is a wing just like an aeroplane wing, but it, the wing's spinning around rather than you've got speed of the uh, of the aircraft. And so you get these these tip vortices, as we call them, 
And that means that the air at the tips that's above the wing is already going down yep. when it hits the wing. So you're losing lift because okay. you're not gaining. You, you, ideally, you want nice fresh air. Uh, and if if uh, the air is already going down, you lose some of the lift. Okay. So when you're in the hover, these these uh, are quite marked. These um, uh, vortices. But as you start to move forward, you move into clearer air. So you're moving okay. away from the air you've already disturbed yep. into these vortices, and you get this clearer. And that's so the what we call in the helicopter world, you call the the downward air induced flow. Right. And induced flow is a bad thing because that yep. makes you need more power to to, uh, uh, to keep the thing flying. So if you can get into fresh air, yep. then the induced flow reduces. Yep. So by moving forward I understand into new yep. air, okay. you're, you're leaving the induced flow behind you and you need less power for the same amount of lift. So you can lift heavier loads. So you okay. Conversely, if you're in, for example, a clearing with, say, between four buildings or in a clearing of trees, yep. the air has nowhere else to go than back into the into the rotors. Yeah. So that increases your induced lift. So you need even more power. Yeah. And, and people have got themselves into all sorts of trouble where they've run out of power because they've they're in the in a, in an enclosed area. Yeah. And in confined areas. Uh, the other thing that helps you also is if you have the ground beneath you. Yeah. It resists the flow going down. So you have this thing called ground effect. Right. The so ground effect stops the downward flow into the into the rotors and gives you more lift. and gives you more lift. Right. Okay. So it hovering at a hundred feet. Takes more it's power right. than hovering at ten feet. Okay, and so you use a a, a a lot of these sort of techniques together. So what you can do is just get a very very either with wheels you can do a running takeoff, yep. which means you can get airborne with a lot heavier aircraft. Okay, than you so can by lifting into almost, the hover, almost like taking off at air. So, yeah. and you can oh, take yeah. off on a runway with yeah. like a Puma, for example, yeah. and the Chinook can take off with forward speed without any lift at all, and then. The, once right, they're, they're okay. moving forward, you're into this clear air. So that's that's how moving forward gives you more lift. And also in landing, particularly if you've, for example, lost an engine, yep. then you will use a running landing technique rather than a hover landing technique because once you're there in the hover, you're back into this induced flow. Okay, I actually remarkably understand. Well, hey. I get it. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, Stuart says... Uh, can he? Can you talk about the dangers involved in this type of flying? He said there was a particular accent during the Vietnam War. Was that the underslung loads he was talking about? Uh, mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So underslung loads. Um, it's a very quick way to load up and unload a helicopter. So the the, the load is prepared in a net normally, yeah. or can be, um, for example, a, a jeep has certain points or a, a, a field gun. Yeah. And in a Chinook, you know, a, a house or something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you can you can pre-prepare the load. The helicopter comes in. You clip it onto the hook of the of the aircraft, yeah. and it flies away. Also, if you then have an engine failure in the in the aircraft, yeah. you can then just get rid of the load like that. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, you lose the load. Yeah. But um, uh, but it, it then makes you lighter instantly. Yeah. So it's a safer way of carrying a lot of load. If that load okay. was inside the aircraft, yeah. a, it takes a lot longer to get in and out of the aircraft yeah. to load it up, and B, you can't jettison it quite so easily. Yeah. So it's easy to jettison. Um, the Chinooks do take uh, the shipping containers, no ISO containers, yeah. the big. I've known of them, they carry, carry those around. I did hear of one incident in the Falklands yeah. where a Chinook was asked to take a um, an ISO container from the base up to one, probably one of the hills, so they took it up there. Uh, then the uh, the army guy got out, opened the ISO container, and eighty Gurkhas got out of the, <laughs> the container itself, which the pilots didn't know about. 
because had they had a problem with that, they could have just got rid of it. Oh my that was a god. long time ago. Oh my um, god! But, <laughs> oh my god! Uh, the dangers yeah. involved also. Uh, not all loads fly well. Yeah. So sometimes, while the aircraft's flying itself, I can imagine the yeah. load underneath is flying yeah. a certain ways as, as well. And you can build up a horrible swing on these things. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that happened in Vietnam. Right. The, the thing started swinging. Yeah. And it it inverted the the, the the helicopter. Now there are things you can do to stop that while you're flying. You can. Apply G somehow, just by, by yeah. either turning or pulling up or speeding just up keep, and slowing down, keep, just to try and keep the load, keep, keep the load yeah. stable. But again, if it gets too too high, either the pilot or the crewman has the opportunity just to pickle the load, as they call it, yeah. and, and get rid of it. Unless it's a, Unless it's a load of ice container full of gurkhas. You know what? I actually chose that question mainly because it mentioned the microlight. Mm. But it was fascinating. Oh, thank you. Oh, that was very good. That was a great very question. Very good. And it was really a great good question. story behind it as well. Yeah. Thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you for listening and getting involved. Please send us any more questions that you have. Uh, we are always looking for questions for Ask James. Uh, we are going to move on. Oh, yes. <laughs> We're going to move on to the top landing gear quiz. Oh. Question number one. James, do you want a quiz? No. Correct. Yay! Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's just for you, Rob. Actually, wait. I didn't wait, have a buzzer. Wait. Question number one. Mm. I'm going to put the turnabout music in here. James. Yes. Do you want a top landing gear quiz? <clears throat> no. Correct. Right. Here we go. Before we go into our interview, I wanted to read another wonderful message we received after the Lancaster episode, which is available to download now alongside our interview with Andrew Panton, who is heroically getting his own Lancaster back <laughs> into the air at the Lincoln Aviation Centre, which is a fantastic place. You have to go and check it out. Stay at the pet word. There's so much stuff to do in Lincoln. You know, we are, we are, we are huge fans. Anyway, this is a message from Ian Strong. Uh, and I'm going to read it all because it is fascinating. Uh, great to have the new series to listen to on my drive to work. You were talking about Lancaster Pathfinders, which we were, and it was a classic mm. Jez quick fact where he it mentioned was. it and didn't actually research anything <laughs> about it. But He is dreadful, that point. I don't <laughs> know why he's on the podcast. Uh, I love the quick facts, but just wish they were quicker. Uh, okay. <laughs> the only Bomber Command veteran I ever met was a Pathfinder, Flight Lieutenant Reg Barker. was a member... Flight Lieutenant Reg Barker was a member of 635, this is why you're here, 635 <laughs> Squadron, RAF, down in Market. On the 26th of August, 1944, they were tasked with attacking the naval base at Kiel. The 12 Lancasters from 635 arrived over target, bang on time, dropped their bombs and flares. After turning for home, there was suddenly an explosion and a massive flash, which turned the Lank onto her back. Getting it back level, Reg checked in with his crew, who all confirmed they were fine. With a massive fire on the starboard wing, Reg tried to nose the Lank down into a dive, hoping to extinguish the fire with the increased airflow. However, the controls went slack in his hands and the plane dived uncontrollably. The Lancaster had been split in two and Reg had no control at all. He called to abandon the aircraft, but with the centrifugal force pinning Reg and the flight engineer to the cockpit roof, there seemed no way out. He lost consciousness. But when he came round, he was out of the aircraft and pulled his parachute. Floating down, he watched his Lancaster crash. When he came down, he hoped to walk to Denmark following the North Star, but was soon captured. Eventually, he was reunited with four of his crew, one of which, miraculously, was the tail gunner, who also survived the solo flight in the severed tail of a Lancaster. They all spent the next year as POWs. Sadly, the other two crewmen did not survive, both being unable to extricate themselves from the doomed Lancaster. 
They'd been attacked by an ME-110 with the upward-flying 20mm cannons. I cannot imagine how terrifying this must have been. Reg Barker is no longer with us, passing away three years ago, but I'm privileged to have been able to hear his story firsthand. Uh, thank you, Ian. Uh, I, no. I did a little bit of research into yeah. this. Uh, and I'm going to put the links up. And, and Reg actually tells the story in, there's a, in incredible detail about it. Guess how old Reg was when he was skipped that flight in 1944? I'm going to say 25, 24. 22. <gasps> 22 years Jeez. old. Think of your son, 19. Yeah. Right? Uh, wow. Ian, that was amazing. Thank you so much. My grandfather was a similar age when he flew Anson's and Lancaster's for the Royal Australian Air Force. And the bravery and sacrifice of that generation, I don't know, it leaves me breathless. It mm. always gives me like a sense of perspective. Yeah. And whatever I do. I mean, when, when you can't get Wi-Fi, you know, that's annoying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But being pinned to the roof of your Lancaster upside down spinning is slightly worse. It, I it, I, when I read Reg's version of it, he said that he thought he was going to die and mm. nothing went through his head. Just He just saw burning <laughs> and then suddenly thought he was in heaven because he just heard this whistling and it was just the wind yeah. going through and something made him pull his cord. And is, Does he know how he got out? No. No, to this day, nobody knows no. how... And the Flight engineer got out as well. Flight engineer got out as well, and the wow. tail got a separate. You know, it was yeah, That's unbelievable. Uh, we're going to stick with World War Two and onto the Spitfire. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to find something that related to one of our podcasts. <laughs> but eighty-five years ago, this week mm. saw the first ever public display of the Spitfire on the twenty-seventh of June, nineteen thirty-six. Supermarine Spitfire prototype K five zero five four appeared in front of huge crowds at the RAF Hendon display. Maiden flight had taken place four months earlier on the 5th of March 1936 when Captain Joseph Mutt Sumners, chief test pilot for Vickers, is that how you say it? Yeah, yeah. Yep, took K5054 from Eastley Aerodrome for an eight-minute <clears throat> flight, after which he made his famous but oft misunderstood remark, I don't want anything touched. Mm. Now, unfortunately for the romantic, it yeah. wasn't because it was perfect. <laughs> it's because he wanted to speak to Mitchell and the design team <laughs> before they started changing things. But... Testing and modifications continued. Yeah, sorry, just was Mitchell still alive when it flew? Yeah. He was alive yeah. When, he, when, it, when it first flew, yeah. was he? Right. Uh, testing and modification continued. 15th May, with a new propeller, mm. uh, it set a top speed of 348 miles per hour, outclassing the hurricane and earning the reputation of the fastest military aircraft in the world. Mm. Uh, tragically, three days after war was declared on Germany, an awkward landing uh, at the hands of Flight Lieutenant... Lieutenant Group Sergeant, it's GS. Flight Lieutenant Spinner White. Okay. Led to the machine tipping over nose first onto its back. The fuselage broke up and White suffered fatal neck injuries. Aircraft was never rebuilt, but a legend had been born. And so to hear more about this icon of icons, here is our interview with Jim Schofield, which we did just one week before lockdown. It was. Before the world changed and you had that horrendous cough. (laughs) And everyone was avoiding me like like I had the plague or something. It was, it was ridiculous. So here we go. We're at the Boltby Academy at Goodwood Airfield in Sussex. With us is Jim, who is the chief pilot here, Jim, and you take people on the most magnificent flights in two-seater Spitfires, don't you? We do, yeah. We fly them from uh, Leon Silent and Goodwood all through the summer and uh, also the spring and the autumn, so it's, it's a wonderful job to have. Tell us what you've been doing here today, in fact, over the past few weeks, in terms of getting new pilots qualified to fly the beautiful Spitfire. 
Well, before we start flying passengers at the beginning of the season and after the end of the season, we train customers to fly Spitfires. So it's not just staff training. We, we offer conversion to type for people on the street as well. So uh, it's, yeah, a fascinating cross-section of society you get to meet and work with and um, every day is a new adventure. I know, I know, sorry, I know flying isn't cheap in general, but that can no, be cheap. No, it's not. No, it really isn't. <laughs> no, it's not cheap, but um, we would say it's worth it. Yeah, obviously. Uh, how many people are training each year and how many Spitfires are there to go round? I mean, are these guys who are planning to buy a Spitfire or just want to fly a Spitfire that someone else provide them? Some people just want our blessing that they're um, able to fly a Spitfire to a solo standard. Others are targeting Spitfires they have in mind to go and fly or they've been promised a, a seat in one at some point. And then uh, everything in between as well. So it's not cheap, but um, it's the only way to do it, really. Yeah. So we, we've got a professional, so he tells us, airline pilot in, in James here. He's also flown Pumas in the RAF. So he's got a few hours under his collar. Roy is just embarking on his PPL. That's so how, here at Goodwood, in oh, fact, wow. so how many hours would he need to get under his belt before he can even think about controlling, captaining a Spitfire? We recommend a 1,000 hours total and 100 hours on tailwheel. How much have you done so far, Roy? <laughs> One. <laughs> well, it's a start. 999. Every hour counts. Yeah. <laughs> but, right. um, you know, we, we have a certain degree of flexibility on those requirements, but we found that... One? That, that's <laughs> a certain degree of flexibility. <laughs> but we found that's a good place to start. So when, sorry, when Second World War pilots with mm. 19, 20 hours got in one of those things, yeah. I mean, how the hell did they cope? So the idea was they'd have about 50 hours in Tiger Moth, so maybe another 50 in something like a Miles Master, and right. then into the, the Spitfire at an it's operational training unit. 15 No, 5-0 was the plan. Yeah. Um, in practice, particularly in the spring of 1940, there weren't many hours to go around, yeah. and they couldn't get hold of Spitfires to train people on. So you had very low hours people getting into these aeroplanes, mm -hmm. but then there was a war on, and yeah. there were thousands of them. So yeah. um, but, I mean, different I, times. I would find it daunting with... 10,000 hours mm. myself. Um, to be a 20 hour, 30 hour newbie to get in one of those. It must, have been, time, it must still, have been terrifying. Yeah. There were no two seaters. Yeah. So, you know, the first time you had to land it by yourself. Yeah. Um, and there was a war on. So yeah. you knew this, you knew what the, the goal was. Yeah. So it must have been, yeah. It was on the job training, wasn't it? For those it who made it. And they were the first. Yeah. Young, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. But they did have a load of accidents. And these days we can't really afford. Yeah. That's that same amount of attrition. Yeah. No. And landings in particular were interesting for them because everyone up until that point had been used to flying fixed landing mm. gear aircraft. So they quite often would come in with wheels up because they it was something that they just weren't used to. Yeah. They had were, to lower the gear. There were lots of new aspects. You know, the Spitfire was cutting edge in many different um, areas. So so yeah, there were lots of things, lots of potential hazards to trip yourself up on. Jim, you've got over a hundred types to your name multiple hours on many of them. Not quite sure, looking at how young you are, how you've managed that. But is it possible to say where the Spitfire would sit in that list in terms well, of the favourites? Firstly, that's very kind of you to say those <laughs> things, and I'm glad it's a podcast and not TV, otherwise the listeners would would, uh, would work you out. But um, the Spitfire is in the top two um, for sure. It's probably at the top of the pile, not only because of um, 
you know, the, the affection the British nation has for the aircraft, but just the way it flies. It's, it's an amazing machine. Um, the other aircraft that's very near the top is a German aeroplane from the 30s, I know, <laughs> called a Booker Jungmeister. Oh, yes. yes, which yes. is just a delightful aerobatic biplane. Wow. Yeah, but um, yeah, the Spitfire probably pips it. Goodness me, I've never heard that comparison before. Well, they're two very different aeroplanes, mm. but the Jungmeister's handling is is just amazing. Something else. And and in terms of, you talk about the the love and affection the British public has for the Spitfire, mm. as do its pilots. And talking to World War Two pilots who've flown it, they all say what a beautiful machine it was to fly. Is that really the case, or has everyone just got a little bit carried away with their enthusiasm for the aeroplane? No, it really is the case. It's practically viceless in the air. Um, it has its foibles on the ground, but I'm sure we'll cover those later. <laughs> um, and it's a delight to fly. It's a very fast, slippery aeroplane, so converting height to speed and back again is effortless. Um, you just have to think your way around the sky in it, really. Can you stop it if you need to? As in, slow it down, is it? Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's, you need to plan that. Yeah. So if I'm coming back into the circuit at Goodwood, say, mm-hmm. um, I can't just barrel in from 3,000 feet and expect to be able to be at a speed where I can put the wheels down downwind. So I need to think ahead and manage the speed, much as you do in an airliner, yeah. but um, in, in a different way. Wow. And... Gerard, you have been in the back of a Spitfire with Jim. Well, not with Jim. He was in the front. <laughs> so it was. It was a tight so squeeze as it was. <laughs> but it was... Um, it was... I'd I said this at the time. Say, I watched the video of you and I stopped when you said, the stick keeps hitting my belly. <laughs> <laughs> You can't have to say that. <laughs> was there a G limitation on his flight purely because of the back stick you could kick? No comment. <laughs> Not from where I was sitting. Uh, Jim, it was. I, I was lucky enough to, to be given uh, um, my flight with you in the Spitfire as a, as, a, as a 50th birthday present, and it was honestly the best day and the best thing I've ever done. It was. Uh, Except as getting a, married to your wife. Remember? Apart from <laughs> apart from that and having children. But aside from those things, it was, I didn't really know what to expect. I was quite nervous. wasn't quite sure if I was looking forward to it or not. Mm. And, and just because it was such a, a strange thing to do mm. from my normal life. But once we got to, uh, to Leon Solent, it was a cracking day. It was a beautiful summer's day. And we had the briefing and everything. We had told how to fall out of the aircraft yes. um, should there be a problem. Uh, and, and given us all the safety drills. And that was daunting but exciting and then to actually get out into the aircraft and then sort of squeeze myself into it be strapped in I just remember my heart was absolutely pounding and then off we went and then I tried to I just remember that it was an emotional sensory overload and I tried it it was impossible to but I tried to get every bit of it into me and it was I was looking around and I was talking to you and I was looking at instruments and you couldn't take it all in. It was too much to take in a one thirty-minute flight. And and as we've said in the past, you know, then landing back at and uh, 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 getting out of the aircraft, and you said, "Very matter frankly, how was that for you?" And I, and I started to say, thinking I'd manage. That was absolutely amazing. And I, I couldn't get through my sentence because <laughs> I was completely choked up. It was, I completely couldn't understand. It, it caught me out totally. And it's not an uncommon reaction. But the wonderful thing about this job is we get to share this amazing experience with, with people who otherwise wouldn't 
get to see any of this. It was an incredible privilege. And hopefully the video as well, you can um, play it back and see some of the detail that you missed at the time. I watched it back properly for the first time, actually. I left it for ages, I don't know why. I just wanted to just remind myself last night before we did this, I watched it back and it still gave me goosebumps. And uh, I even talk about it now, I actually feel quite emotional. It was, I think it's everything to do with the the aeroplane, as you said about flying it, and as you said, Rob, about its place in our history. But it's 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 such an amazing thing anyway as a piece of engineering as a, as an iconic piece of british history and what it did and then to be able to go in it it was totally overwhelming and it was really incredible so thank you and to do what we did and to take the spit i mean i've flown one i can say <laughs> over the channel as well <laughs> <laughs> elliptical wings over the channel did, you can't did you actually it. do that i didn't can is that what yeah, people actually get yeah. the chance to fly at? absolutely wow i, I didn't do anything I flew it straight yeah. and more or less level. <laughs> I went up and down a bit. I pulled a left turn and a right turn. Yeah. And then Jim said, I have control. And I said, you have control. Didn't really want to let go. The stick continued to hit my belly. As, as, as sort of tried to... And then we did a barrel roll, a victory roll. And a loop. And a loop, a loop. Wow. And it was incredible. For anybody who wants to do that, Start saving. Is there, is there anybody who can't do it? Do you ever have unsuitable passengers? I mean, I'm not saying about weight. I'm just talking about sort of from a mental point of view of people who can't. While we do have weight and height restrictions, the yeah. bottom line for us from a safety perspective is you've got to be able to get out of yeah. the aeroplane if you had to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that when people arrive, we assess their ability to, to take on board the, um, the safety information mm-hmm. and act on it. Um, so we very rarely have to turn people down, but um, but if we had to, that, that would, would be desperately disappointing, wouldn't it? Go on, adjust. Um, and, and the first of my two flights in the Spitfire, which seemed to be totally <laughs> overlooked through all of this, I remember sitting for which you were paid, for which I was paid, even um, sitting in in that cockpit, and the guy saying, "Right, if you do have to bail out, here's how the cockpit canopy opens." And it wasn't one of these bubble teardrop mm-hmm. canopies; it was it was like the original front okay. canopy. And um, saying, aim for the trailing edge. Oh, did you have that as well? Yeah. Aim for the trailing edge of the main wing. Otherwise, <laughs> your head will hit the tailplane and that would be bad. And he said, um, just remember your seat buckles. You've got a seat buckle and one is a parachute bu- bu- buckle. Remember which is which. And I was looking, they were so worn out. This wasn't Boltby. This wasn't Boltby. <laughs> the, the buckles were so worn out, I honestly couldn't tell which was the seat and which was the parachute canopy. So you I just, right, you? <laughs> you don't want to make too, too many mistakes. But you were wearing a, a full bone dome, weren't you? Because I, I asked yeah. you yeah. what yeah. you thought of the sound of the engine once you're sitting behind yeah. it. But you said you couldn't really tell because you were wearing your, your bone dome. Yes, I mean you you can feel it as much as yeah. uh, as as hearing, I suppose, and I didn't, I didn't have anything to compare it to, obviously. But no. I mean, yes, yeah, so you get a massive sense of it, and obviously when we started the engine. Um, the, only, the only reason I ask is I was wearing a little leather flying helmet, oh, and really? and it actually was quite a disappointing sound from when you were outside. It sounded a bit more like a tractor. It's very well, different in. It is different, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that's a sound. Are you sure you weren't in a tractor? <laughs> I think it was. It was no, it was definitely a spiffer. Definitely a spiffer. Yeah. No, it was a. It's quite a sort of raw sound, whereas you, you didn't quite get that purr mm. that you seem to get when you when you're listening from outside. I think a lot of the external experience is hearing it roar past you, but when you're you know strapped to it, yeah, it's more of a constant. In. Do you still get a kick out of it, Jim? I mean, I'm sh- I'm sure you do. Every time. Do you really? Yeah, without fail. Yeah, I have to pinch myself every time. 
it is in the list of like top jobs in the world. It's, it's not bad. Yeah. And what are the kind of experiences that people come to you with? I imagine a lot of people who, I mean, you have to say, but well, we all paid for Jeremy to go up in it. All his friends and family contribute. He doesn't have any friends. So we had to contribute a lot of money between us to, to pay for him to go up. But, but um, what sort of experiences do you find people have? Some of them come because they have a, a personal or, or family association with the Spitfire? We get all kinds of different people coming, but um, a lot of it is um, is bucket lists that um, have yet to be fully ticked off. So people in their 60s and 70s who are just um, just looking to you know cross everything off the list. <laughs> and all the way through to uh, teenagers we've had whose dads are flying in airplanes alongside them. So, you know, we get the full cross section. And um, most people are overcome by it. Um, as you've said, it is a sensory overload flying in one. Um, so I'd say about 20 to 30% of the people are definitely moist around the eye when they <laughs> land. Um, but what it does give you, you can watch the films, watch, read the books, and you've got a frame of reference to try and understand what it was like for the 19-year-olds um, the mm. back in 1940. Mm. Mm. After we'd uh, done our flight, Jim, I went back and actually listened on, 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 uh, uh, you know, as, a, as an audible book um, to First Light, the Jeffrey mm. Lennon, which I had read many years before. Yeah. And I, I listened to it again. And, and, I mean, obviously my experience was in no way comparable, but it did, as you said, it gives you a, a point of reference. And it was, I think it, it's an amazing book anyway, mm. but it, it even more brought it to life just because you could just imagine it being up in it and, and you, know, you can't imagine being shot at or... Being in a, in a war environment, but it was uh, I really, I think it really brought the book to life. And, uh... and that book, First Light, um, is the best book I've read for putting you in the seat at the time. Oh, so his description yeah. of being over the North Sea, trying to hunt a dornier in an outer yeah. cloud. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's um, very, very well written. It's a brilliant book. Mm. Yeah, it's a brilliant book. I'm just looking at the map behind you, actually. I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, the Isle of Wight and... and you know, on Solent and just imagining where I where where, where we flew flew around the needles and back along the the south, southern point and That's I right. took control just over the sort of uh, eastern end of um, of the Isle of Wight and we flew sort of northeasterly and then you took control. Well, we were actually traveling. <laughs> yes, got it. Was headed for Guernsey, but, and then and then you took control further a bit further east and we, we did our our barrel roll and our and our uh, victory roll and we headed back west and then did the loop my ridiculous grin yeah well i don't blame you can't you can't avoid it it's as you say it's a hugely emotional experience jim all these um all these two-seaters are are mark nines i think yes or converted mark nines which it's part of the spitfire story in in what a brilliant airframe it was from the outset in terms of being able to develop it Mm. i was lucky enough to to uh, interview alex henshaw one of the spitfire test pilots many years ago and asked him what his favorite mark was i know you've flown a few marks of spitfire so before i tell you what his answer was what would your answer be i've only flown the five and the nine but if you look at the development of the spitfire um it started off as a almost a light aircraft really with a thousand or so horsepower and it developed into a fire-breathing monster with well over two thousand horsepower um during that development, as the performance increased, the handling inevitably got a bit worse as the aircraft got heavier. So I think the knee and the curve in terms of performance and handling, people generally say it's a Mark V. 
Um, I've flown the five and the nine, and the five is delightful. Um, the nine is no slouch, <laughs> um, but the five just feels a little bit lighter. It's, um, it really talks to you. I'm just trying to look at my notes to see what I think he said almost exactly the same thing, actually. Uh, it was well, the that's Mark lucky. <laughs> <laughs> it was the Mark V with the 25 boost engine. Oh, Whatever that means. Fine. He said the lighter and the more power, the better it is. Which is pretty much what you were saying. Yes, absolutely. I also asked him the question: is there a point within the Spitfire lineage where, in his view, and I'd like to ask your opinion on this, it's no longer really a pure Spitfire. You certainly have to, I haven't flown the, the Griffin engine variants, but I've heard people talk about them a lot, and it's a different it's a different beast. Um, not only does the engine go the other way, yeah. but you've got twice as much power to handle mm-hmm. in an airframe that wasn't potentially designed for all that power. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that the power had to increase to counter the developing threat from uh, Is the Falk Wolf, was it in particular? And the V1s? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So the Spitfire needed to develop in that direction. Um, did it ever become not a Spitfire? I don't think so. Um but I think everyone flying the Mark 14s and the 19s probably looked back um, with a tear in their eye at the Mark 5s. <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, recognising that um, you needed all that power. Yeah. Well, you're in good company because that's pretty much what he said. <laughs> he said as soon as the Griffin engine was introduced, which I think came into the Mark 12, it's probably the first type to have the Griffin. But he said once that was on board, he thought it wasn't really a, a true, pure Spitfire yeah. anymore. Yeah. I'll buy that. <laughs> if a Mark 14 flew against a Mark 1, Mark 2, mm. who would win? The Mark 2 would outturn the 14 yeah. because it's got this, pretty much the same wing or exactly the same wing and less weight. Yeah. So you, can, you can turn better. But the 14 would, would have the thrust. So they would want to fight in a very different way. Yeah. The, the, the earlier version would, would want to have a turning fight mm-hmm. and the 14 would yeah, have definitely. slashing attacks and taking it vertical a lot. Uh, the 14 would probably win. Right. It's interesting you mentioned the wing because each type could have numerous types of wing. I think I'm right in saying, I mean, you could have a 5B. I mean, weren't yes, there the mostly A, B, C, D, E? Uh, that was down to yes. armament arm rather than wing shape, was it? Yeah, so the A was all 303 machine guns. And then the, by the time the C came along, that was a universal wing. You could have 20 mil cannon and the 303s. And then the E we've got in the hangar has... Uh, 50 cal machine guns as well as 20 mil, but the 303s have been deleted. So we're getting into a bit of a, um, a caliber fest here. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. And did you have you ever flown a clip wing? Yes, the the Mark V I fly is clip wing. Uh, then does that does that for increased rotation? Yeah, it does. So um, a normal wing you can do a 360 degree roll in about five seconds, and the mm. clip wing takes it down to about four seconds. So if you're fighting one, that yeah. um, that that would make all the and difference. And the penalty for that is. Not noticeable, to be honest. Um, In which case, why didn't all future variants just retain the clipped wing? I'm glad they didn't. I'll caveat my not noticeable with (laughs) I don't fly them on the edge. I don't fight them when we're looking to preserve them these days. So I'm sure if you had to max perform the aircraft all the time, you would notice the difference. Yeah. But um, for display flying, you you can't really tell. No. There's a a slightly less lift, clearly, in a a clipped wing aircraft, so it's not going to turn quite as well. Going back to his performance as a fighter, <clears throat> excuse me, during the war, was part of his theory down to the fact that um, 
towards the end of the war, certainly the Germans were just running out of pilots. Their, their, their pilots were so badly, not bad, maybe badly, undertrained that their, the rate of attrition was always going to favour the, the Allies. And the certainly the, the Messerschmitt 109 was a real handful on the ground, mm. so a lot of their attrition was from landing accidents. So I think they got through a fair few pilots just because of that, whereas the Spitfire tended to hold on to its its pilots. It was a lot more forgiving aeroplane. Um, but throughout the war, there was a, a leapfrog in um, development, as there always is with um, when you're fighting people. Um, so a Fort Wolf would best a, um, a Spitfire Mark V, whereas the Mark IX came along with a two-stage supercharger, slightly more horsepower, and that was better than the Fort Wolf at the time. So there was that continual leapfrogging. I wouldn't say the Spitfire had an advantage throughout the war, but no. maintained it where it could. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the Spitfire itself, you, you touched on this earlier, mm. was a bit of a hand, is a bit of a handful on the ground, isn't it? Yeah, it can be. Um, you've got 1,700 horsepower in these Mark 5s, sorry, Mark 9s, and um, the throttle travel is maybe six to eight inches. So... You know, that's a lot of power to control with a small lever. Um, and there's the effect of that power on the airframe. You need to anticipate all the torque and precession and slipstream. And there's a lot going on. So particularly if the wind isn't favorable um, or you're in a hard runway, which is a bit less forgiving, or you haven't flown it in a little while, you know, all these things can um, prey on your mind. Do you have, do you, sorry, do you sorry. have ground wind limits as well as air? Sort of take off from landing wind limits? Um, we do, yes. So they're... You can taxi in a higher wind um, than we would choose to land right. in. Um, mm. If it gets much higher than that, then we sit someone on the tail mm -hmm. uh, to taxi around yep. and try not to get airborne in that configuration. <laughs> did that to a lady? Didn't it did, yes. Margaret, oh, I can't think of her name. It was AB910, which is with the Battle Britain Memorial Flight, I think was the Spitfire in question that she she became she airborne. Remarkably good <laughs> well, you know. Almost we are an aviation podcast. <laughs> yeah, we are. I can't remember her name. Margaret Lockwood. No, she was an actress, wasn't she? Yeah. Anyway, Margaret Hallwood, something like that. Anyway, it's been quite the ride. <laughs> I mean, it's it's staggering to to believe that it ever really happened, or that mm. the pilot was able to get airborne because yeah. the 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 balance and the handling of the aircraft. Well, I think he noticed pretty early on. In, he must have done. <laughs> Yeah, he must have done. a pretty brief circuit, I think. Is it a the experience you can tell <laughs> <laughs> Are you volunteering? That would never get off the ground. We need a crash test dummy. Yes. We've well, got a dummy. Yes. But we'll have more from Jim in a moment. You're listening to Top Landing Gear. And however you are listening, please do leave a review. And if you're tempted to subscribe to the podcast, then so much the better. But we'd love you to join us, be part of the conversation, and make the most of our regular feature, Ask James, where you can ask our resident expert anything you like about aviation. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Top Landing Gear. For now, though, let's hear more from our special guest, Jim Schofield. Just aside from the Spitfire, and on your long list of aircraft you have flown, is there anything you'd still like to fly that you haven't yet? Um, it's sticking in the Second Puma. World War. Puma. 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 No, 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 not, no not so much the Puma. It's a great answer. Well done. <laughs> no one cares, James. Puma. Well, that's Triple seven. No, um, I would love to fly aircraft like the Sea Fury and the Bearcat, just because they were the you know the pinnacle of Second World War performance. Yeah. And then jets came along. Yeah. Um, 
so definitely those two. Um, from the First World War perspective, um, no, I'm happy with the SE-5A. That's a delightful <laughs> aeroplane. Amazing. Although I haven't um, tried any or got the opportunity to fly any rotary-engined aircraft yet, and that's a discipline that's... This is uh, where the engine itself rotates? It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you've got that whole spinning mass up the front. <laughs> yeah, which is, yeah. I can't believe anyone thought that was ever a good idea. No, quite. <laughs> and I think your intuition would have served you well. Yeah. And then from a jet perspective, I think the Phantom. Love to fly the Phantom. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the, the Lightning was awesome. I, mean, cause I mm. grew up with this the book, the Ladybird book of aeroplanes. And inside the front cover was an expanded um, picture of the lightning. You're yeah. talking about the English electric. The English electric. Like, this man has flown yes. the most recent. In fact, you were on the, the well, the test team for the F-35? Yes. Yeah, but this, this is, this is uh, Jim you're pointing at. Jim, sorry, yeah, Jim. Jim, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. sorry. Yeah, I beg your pardon. You make snow. Jim Schofield, as opposed to James Garner, Jim Schofield flew the F-35 as part of the test programme before the RAF And that was the highlight of my professional career. Wow. It was an amazing machine in every sense and so totally different from... The Spitfire we've been talking about, um, the Spitfire, visceral, you're concentrating on the pure handling of the aeroplane, whereas these days that's done for you. So the handling is and should be really easy, which means you've got all this capacity now, mental capacity to concentrate on all the information the mm. jet's displaying to you. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a totally different kettle of fish. A long way from pure flying. Yes. Mm. Can you take what you know about, say, the Spitfire or any other aircraft? Does that inform things that you you may do with it, or in your mentally how you think about things, or is it is it so far removed that it just does not compare in any way? I think when things go wrong in any aeroplane, you draw on that bucket of experience, um, which could be books you've read or accident reports you've read. Um, so I wouldn't discount something I've learned in the Spitfire, um, some small nugget, meaning that I'd handle an emergency better in some other aeroplane. But um, And even accidents you've had, James? <laughs> um, yes, they all help me. <laughs> Long list. And I've, I've learned never to make the same mistake twice, just keep making new mistakes. Yeah, there you are. But there are so many out there. Oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's only to choose from. So, if, I've asked uh, uh, Jim, um, mm. sorry, James, I've asked Jim uh, what's on his bucket list. What, what, I mean, your bucket list might be a little bit longer because James uh, just yeah. covered too many. But what, what would you. Well, obviously, I mean, without saying the Spitfire, one day I'd love to find the Spitfire. Um, and my CV's actually just gone into Boltby. They've sent it back for some reason, I don't know why. Um, We're running out of toilet paper. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send it again! We're <laughs> <laughs> not editing that. Editing that. Yeah, so, um, but jet-wise, uh, I said the Lightning, the old English electric Lightning, just, just because it was that iconic thing when I was yeah. growing up a long time ago. Um, and the 25 minutes fuel it had, it would have been absolutely yes. fantastic to, yes. uh, to go up to 30,000 feet and then glide back home again. Um, Phantom, um, again, I followed one around the circuit at Cranwell once and just thought, wow. What were you in? The Tucano. Oh, right. It was in the last days of the Phantom when I was training on the Tucano. Oh, wow. Um, and, I mean, Concorde without saying, mm. I think just to flown yes. it, just yes. to have been even in the flight deck for, for, for a flight and it would have been fantastic. No helicopters in your list. <laughs> I've flown all the best helicopters, the Wessex and the Puma. <laughs> oh. 
Um, and uh, yeah, no, a helicopter's a. There's no. I don't think there's anything about a particular helicopter that really gets you. A lot of people like the Chinook, um, but I've met people who like. So it's a typical Air Force <laughs> chat, isn't um, it? So, and, and I've done, as I've been more recently fixed wing, I've certainly looked towards fixed wing types. But historic aircraft, you know, to fly any aircraft, it has its, its differences and its vices and its wonderful things about it. Uh, and I think just the, any experience you can get, as many, as many types yeah. as you can, just makes you a, a more rounded pilot overall. I was used to say, the, when people ask me what my favourite aeroplane was, I'd say, whichever one I'm in, as yeah. long as it's not a Jaguar. <laughs> oh, really? What was wrong with the Jaguar? Well, I don't want to alienate <laughs> so many of the listeners. So it was just, um, I've done it with Chinook already. I survived about 150 hours in it, and I, it was... It needed more thrust, needed more wing, uh, and those are two pretty critical. Oh, right. Okay. Was yeah, it was. A, it actually needed the curvature of the earth mm, to get off the ground, didn't it? Wow. Yeah. Had but, the most complex landing gear, folding yeah. landing gear, swiveled and. But they've got a ground runner one yesterday, haven't they? I believe there was. Uh, oh, I somewhere. Yes. Yeah. Some social media just fired one up and. Mm. Oh, wow. But hats off to the guys who got so much out of it on the front line. Yeah. Because I but it was a training aircraft originally, wasn't it? It was it designed, as, designed as yeah. a training aircraft. Yeah. And then they decided to put loads and loads of bombs on it, mm. uh, not turning to the engines. Yeah. Had something about the TSR2 about it, Jaguar always felt. Yeah, there was that yeah. wing. It looked right. It, it, yeah, yeah. Just going back to the F-35 Lightning, mm. Jim, you also flew the Harrier. Yes. And I'd love to know the difference operationally and in terms of affection, because I think every aviation enthusiast has huge affection for the Harrier and, and we all miss it terribly. So operationally, the Harrier was um, fantastic at what it did, which was close air support. So, you know, attacking targets close to your own troops and then um, landing in a field site, rearming and doing it again and again and again. Um, F-35 is a completely different kettle of fish, supersonic, stealthy, stovel. Um, it can see everything that's out there and not much can see it. So mm. it's, it's a great place to be when you're fighting a, well, any war. Um, <clears throat> in terms of when you're flying the aeroplane, I'll, I'll never forget being in the Harrier, certainly in the early days, just worrying about the landing. So people said, did you enjoy that flight? Well, I was kind of worrying about the landing a bit too much. <laughs> because the one thing you could guarantee was if you looked away from directly out the front at any point in the Harrier when it was slow, and then you look back again, it would have killed, it would have tried to kill you in mm. the intervening period. Um, so it, it wasn't looking after you and you had to do everything by the book. You cut any corners, it would generally slap you and you might get away with it. Whereas F-35 is looking after you. So it'll level off um, if you let go of the, um, the stick in the hover. It won't let you decelerate below the point at which you run out of wing lift and you would start to descend in a Harrier. It will hold that speed for you. It's, it's looking after you, so it's a, it's a much happier place mm. to be. Does that mean that the pilots flying the Harrier, as opposed to the F-35, for example, were actually regarded as more skillful, or is that an unfair comparison to make? Because you're I think, to think about. Um, it's a different skill set, and the recruitment policy has had to change as a result of that. So the Harrier needed stick-and-rudder people who could... Um, also take in a lot of information over the radio and build a good mental picture and, and, and act on that. Whereas F-35, you know, you're listening all the time as well, but it's a much more visual scenario on the screens in front of you and you're trying to assimilate the information in a different way. 
That's probably a lot more information. There's loads of it, yeah. Mm. Um, so it's it's very different. That is a question to lead on slightly from that. <coughs> My sons <coughs> all want to follow me into the Air Force. One's applying now, one's ready to apply. Is there going to be a fighter pilot job in 30 years' time? <laughs> I think um, throughout history there have been several times when people have predicted the end of manned fighters mm-hmm. um, or the end of um, everything was going to go to missiles so yeah. we don't need a gun anymore. And every time we've um, looked at what could be out there and been optimistic about how quickly all this technology is going to come in and remove the pilot, I think it's um, it hasn't quite turned out that way. N- I would say at the moment, no, we're seeing driverless cars, we're seeing you know, um, personal e-taxis mm-hmm. and all sorts. So I think technology has got to the stage now where this sort of thing is becoming more of a reality. Yeah. Um, and there are some tasks that removing the pilot is achievable for. So um, the dull, dirty, dangerous stuff, um, you know, we've seen, we've got, we've got um, unmanned air vehicles for that currently. Um, but for making snap decisions on the scene when you're taking in loads of different information um, and also being able to well it's difficult to remove the pilot from yeah. that stuff and it's also difficult to control something remotely um, with enough speed yeah. so it's difficult is what yeah. I'd say yes but if you're trying to get an unmanned vehicle to um, fight it's got to make an awful lot of decisions yeah. I think we need to stick to getting cars to drive down roads safely first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we'll get there, I'm sure. Just not yet. I totally agree. Just returning to the Spitfire, um, do you think with so many now restored to flying condition, be it replicas or restoration, and that's probably a, a conversation for another time, do you think it in any way waters down the brand, for want of a better expression? It's an interesting question. Um, I think you've got to look at supply and demand. Um, and where there's demand for building more Spitfires, people will, will fill that niche. And if you look at, um, we built just under 23,000 Spitfires and Seafires. There are probably 250 or so left, of which 55 or so are still flying globally. Mm. So it's not like they're common as muck. Um, <laughs> I think there's still room for more. I don't think it's watering the brand down. Even if they're not authentic in terms of having been World War II veterans necessarily? It's interesting that um, a lot of aircraft get called replicas, um, but when it when you look at aircraft like the Spitfire, people don't tend to use that terminology. Um, there are loads of different shades of um, well, aircraft with different backgrounds. Obviously, you've got almost authentic um, airplanes that have barely been touched since the war, and then you've got pretty much new builds. But um, but we don't tend to talk of that um, terminology, maybe to preserve their prominence. <laughs> Do I think the brand's being watered down? No, a little more. <laughs> <laughs> and they've all got a, an authentic Merlin engine in. Absolutely. So that adds. And on a similar line, we've got quite a few two-seaters mm. now, uh, conversions. Um, bearing in mind that Part of the Spitfire's appeal is its immaculate lines, its beautiful lines. The old two-seater does kind of detract from that with those bubble canopies for the for the rear cockpit so you can fit people up like my brother in it. It's amazing to be able to share the experience, though. And the more we can share the experience with people, the more they'll want to help preserve these aircraft for future generations. Um, so I think it's important that, that people get to fly in them see them living and breathing. Mm. Um, I think 
supply and demand dictates there's you know a natural level of two seaters, and I think we're about there at the moment. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and you can always convert them back again afterwards. Yeah, true, true. You were also involved in the Silver Spit, which is here in the hangar, in getting that ready for its astonishing round the world yes. flight. What sort of problems did you encounter from the outset? I mean, a Spitfire, any fighter aircraft, has a limited endurance. Mm. So this thing, I don't know what the longest leg for this was anyway, but to get one of these to fly around the world, and it did it pretty much perfectly, it is quite some achievement. Absolutely. So a um, a vanilla single-seat Spitfire has about 85 gallons of fuel. Um, For the Silver Spitfire, they um, put some extra fuel tanks in, which took it up to just over 200 gallons, so quite an increase. The longest leg we did um, while we were testing it before it, it went on its trip was about four and a half hours. And for the round the world um, experience itself, then uh, I think three and a half hours was the longest they did. Yeah. And what's it like for a pilot to be in a Spitfire cockpit? For a six that foot four pilot, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking of me here, Yeah. Um, two hours was about my limit of, right. of endurance. So the four and a half hours, um, I spent two and a half of that screaming. <laughs> And trying to adjust, you know, while not loosening the straps too much, trying, <laughs> yes. to, trying to adjust my position to make it a bit more comfortable. It's not too bad. It's uh, it's not like a motorbike. What's or, the fuel burn rate on the, on the, in the cruise? Yeah. Forty gallons an hour at two hundred and twenty-five miles an hour, roughly. Right, roughly, yeah, forty gallons an hour. Yeah. yeah. Um, Do you fly flat? Are you flying at a comfortable speed? Are you throttle right forward. And no, it's fast? it's the minimum speed the engine, the minimum power you can get out of the engine without. Um, get, Fouling the plugs, really. Right. So, um, yeah, it's barely ticking over. Okay. And what do you think that flight achieved? Well, um, they did something no one else has done before, in as much as they flew a Spitfire around the world. Um, they got to showcase British engineering, and they got to reunite the Spitfire with parts of the world that, at least in part, owe um, you know, the success of, of the 1940s to that aircraft. Mm. So... Um, threefold, really. <laughs> but they achieved it. Yeah. Which was... Uh, it's absolutely astonishing. Not a given. No. no, indeed. And what will happen to Gertie now? <clears throat> um, lots of different options. I hope we get to um, show it to the public this season. Um, but I don't know what the future is at the moment. That's, mm-hmm. that's in discussion. Jim, you have had the most extraordinary career to date. You've flown over 100 types pre-First World War, up to the F-35 Lightning, the latest aircraft. Can you just outline how you've managed to have a career quite like this with so many different types in your logbook? It's better to be lucky than good, I think they say. <laughs> so, um, Is it? <laughs> I always wanted to fly airplanes, so it was, it was easy from my perspective. From the age of four, I thought, right, I want to fly airplanes. And I saw school as, as standing in my way. Um, but I finally got into the Air Force. It took me four goes to get in. They really didn't want me, but I managed to <laughs> persuade them otherwise. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're better than me. And then um, the Air Force standard training to Kano, Hawk, Harrier. Um, at the end of my tour on the Harrier, I decided I wanted to be a test pilot, so I went to test pilot school in 2004. That was year-long. They called it the divorce course, but we survived. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then I ended up testing Harriers and flying Jags and Alpha Jets for a couple of years. Helped introduce the Harrier GR9. Went back to the test pilot school to be the um, the principal tutor fixed wing, so the the chief instructor there for a couple of years. And then I did a deal with the devil and took a staff job, so a desk job at High Wycombe, 
because it was an F-35 related job and I knew there was an F-35 test job that I wanted. When when would this have been? Uh, This would have been 2008, 2009. Right. And then, and 10. And then in 2011, uh, it paid off and I went out to the States to test F-35 B and C. Was that when it was still in development in the States? or had... Yeah. So it had been flying for about 18 months, I think, by the time I got over there. Yeah. Um, and I got to fly the F-18 as well. So back to back, being able to compare those two aeroplanes was fascinating because mm-hmm. the F-18 is no slouch, but the F-35 is a different generation. Um, and then I came back to the UK to do a, a wing commander job as the F-35 requirements manager. And it took me about six months to work out what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> And um, after that, I left, joined British Airways, um, flew the uh, the little Airbus around Europe for Gosh. a couple of years. And then... I wish you were my pilot. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and then this job came up um, as chief pilot at the Bolby Flight Academy, and I couldn't wow. say no to a full-time Spitfire job. That is... These jobs just don't exist. They don't. No, exactly. But just um, on the back of the test pilot flying, I met a guy who um, was... I had a, an aerobatic team, so I started flying for him, doing formation displays since 2005. And then I started flying with the Shuttleworth collection with their vintage types in 2010. So, um, yeah, it's uh, just been, I've been so lucky. Any regrets? <laughs> <laughs> not enough puma time. Yeah, not enough <laughs> <pumas. laughs> I think that's been a in your place. <laughs> Beautiful, Jim. Thank you so much for your time. Not at all. Absolutely great talking with you. Fabulous interview. I love that. It does remind me of times before. It does. It's it's history now. It it really is. Um, But Jim Jim is such a, he's a top guy. Yeah. um, But, you know, the the sort of mildest man man, chap you're ever going to meet, but he can fly anything. Yeah. Um, And, Tim, we, we worked out he had a hundred and something types, or he yeah, it was over a hundred types of aircraft. It's amazing. Oh, oh at Bolby now, uh, obviously it's quite punchy to fly the Spitfire, <laughs> but they have an incredible uh, Spitfire simulator, which I think we're going to have to go down and try. Yeah, we're going to have to do that. Maybe maybe when I do my solo flight, and yeah, we'll come and we'll come and cheer you off. Yeah. Remember, you can listen to our earlier podcasts in this and all three series of Top Landing Gear. We've got the Lancaster, the Spitfire, the 747, the BC-10, the Harrier, the Phantom, the Gypsy one, loads more. Uh, We try and create what we call evergreen content. So if you haven't seen stuff, it's supposed to be forever. So uh, we're really proud of some of the interviews we've done. So go and check them out. Please tell people if you're enjoying it. The feedback we had, particularly of the Lank ones, um, with Andrew Payton, was just... People seem to love that. It was, it was really gone. But it, it's a, it's such a hidden yeah. story. It is. I think yeah. you know the fact that this is Lancaster being rebuilt <laughs> to fly. I didn't even know that that was yeah. the thing until we, you know. And yeah. I've been there twice before. <laughs> uh, I know. I think what also people loved was, you know, I did we did the last one where all it was was the sound. Oh, didn't somebody say? I think the best <laughs> the best five minutes of your podcast ever were when you all just shut up and the like. <laughs> I do not. I never took that as the, <laughs> yeah, the barbed <laughs> comment it was. <laughs> anyway, uh, right. Coming up in the next episode, which hopefully will be next day, next week when we have uh, Jez and Rob back, we will talk Dambusters as a precursor to our full flaps outside broadcast with the wonderful Colin, 
That's Colin. why I put Colin, Colin on the WhatsApp. Yes. Because we were trying to remember what his name was because he was incredible. He was our guide at RF Scampton Heritage Centre, which again, anybody can do. It's free of charge. It's an incredible place. The other thing I think we need to shout out yeah. as well is the Save RF Scampton yes. um, campaign. Yep. Um, because obviously they're looking at, uh, uh, well, they're moving the Reds to Waddington and closing Scampton um, to build houses on it. There is a campaign out there. If if Scampton, um, obviously to us, we love the place. Yeah. If, if Scampton's important to you, please visit their site. Go and have a look at it, and um, we'll be the big shout out for, for those guys because it, yeah. it's certainly, you know, it, it's part of our country's history. Yeah, yeah, they can't, they cannot get rid of that. We we should do, we'll do a big thing on that next week. Yeah, I think. Uh, let us know anything or anyone you'd like us to feature, and we'll try and make it happen. We are getting to, we're definitely there. I think with some good passes at the Bournemouth Air Show, uh, which has got. Everything going there. That's going to be our jolly for this year. But any anything else you think we should feature, please let us know. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Top Landing Gear. And do email us with your comments and questions for our expert, James Cartner. See, I've just copied this from Rob. So he yeah. sent it through. Don't tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> really hard to write this. In, I, I, he just cuts and pastes it as well. Yeah, info at Top Landing Gear. That's info at toplandinggear.com. Two, Two G's. G's. And however you're listening to us, please recommend us to your friends and family. And do leave a review, especially if you've enjoyed it. And don't leave a review if you haven't enjoyed it, because we don't care. Uh, but please tell your friends. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye. This is Top Landing Gear.